Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast, the first of the new year. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, 5th January 2021. As the UK goes into national lockdown again, schools are closed, the NHS struggles under the surge of cases, new variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus stalk the world, and vaccination programmes make a faltering start. With me to discuss these things are our regular contributors, Helen Salisbury. Hi, Helen. Hello, I'm a GP in Oxford. Nisreen Alwan. Hi, I'm Nisreen, uh, Public Health at Southampton. And Matt Morgan. Hi, everyone. I'm an intensive care doctor in Cardiff. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us. I know how busy everyone is. Um, I hope you had a decent break over the Christmas and New Year period, but it was a busy time for the virus and and for the NHS. Matt, tell us how things have been. Um, The NHS is clearly under enormous pressure. People are running out of words to describe what's going on, but tell us how, how you would describe it. Well, I guess the analogy I've been using recently is it's been like a house party and I love house parties, but the bit I love best often is when people leave and you can tidy (laughs) up and you can restock the cupboards and you can get your home back in order. And this has been a bit like the worst house party in history. You know, the people haven't left. There's more people coming. uh, The cupboards are empty and you haven't had a chance to tidy up. So, yeah, it's been incredibly challenging Christmas, not just for intensive care, uh, for the whole hospital system, from medicine to rehab to everybody. Um, But right now, I've just worked this weekend, and it it was probably the most challenging week I've ever weekend I've ever worked in my life. Uh, Patient numbers are huge. Uh, The stress is tough, and uh, yeah, the the infrastructure is is struggling also. What about uh, staffing? We're hearing obviously staff are having to take time off to isolate or because they're ill. Um, and now they've, so many of them have got kids at home um, who won't be going to school. H- how, how do you feel the staffing levels are holding up? Yeah, not very well in summary. And a testament to that is some major organisations have already suggested change in the ratio of nursing to patients, for example, in intensive care. Normally, it's one nurse to one patient who's on a ventilator. And those ratios have already been relaxed to one to two, in some cases, one to three. And that's been endorsed by national organisations. So that's really a yardstick to show how tricky staffing is. And as compared to wave one, where we had a a much more ubiquitous shutdown of non-urgent elective services, and we had lots of help coming in, trusts have individually decided to ramp down elective care in certain areas rather than that one ubiquitous change so there's less help coming in Um, now that's different in different places and we do have help which we are very grateful of from theatres and from dental and from uh, paediatrics for example and that's hugely helpful but it's just it's different uh, to the degree and and the coverage really compared with wave one. And how is morale? You know, it, it is tough, um, but we're getting through it. And Christmas was incredibly tough. Talking to colleagues working on, on Christmas Day, it was a really, really hardship for clinical reasons. Um, but w- we got through it. Um, I think we do need organisations now to step up with those basic things staff need 
whether it's food, water, parking, clothes, all those silly things, because uh, it, it's those things that make a big difference. It, it's not, you know, yoga mats. It's not well-being packs. It, it's those basic underlying things. And I think now more than ever, we need that. But it's also hard to do that because the state's accessing departments and accessing COVID zones, there's restrictions on, et cetera. But, but I think now that's when it's more important than ever, actually. Plus, the, the one other thing that we've been finding is that a lot of those clinicians and nursing staff and healthcare providers are also fighting this war of disinformation and responding to sometimes quite uh, upsetting criticism. So it, it sometimes feels like we are kind of fighting two wars, one in hospital and one at home from the sofa. And I think... We also need to appreciate the impact that that can have on staff as well. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Helen, tell us how things are in general practice. I think it depends a little bit where you are. Um, we certainly have seen an enormous increase in cases, just the number of people reported to us. Recently, a lot of them have been younger, which in a sense is better in that they're less likely to be very ill or be in hospital soon, although they may be ill in the long term. Um, I suppose one positive at the moment, I'll say, is that it's felt really good to be starting doing vaccinations and um, primary care networks, which are in lots of places quite new um, organisations, have had a real reason to work together and come together um, and I have to say, there's a there's a lovely feeling of optimism and collaboration when you're coming together with a group of other clinicians and vaccinating a thousand people in a day, and and that's great. So, you know, although many general practices are really struggling because of staff absence, particularly, there are there are some bright moments in there. Uh, that's that's encouraging to hear, Nizreen. Tell us what you're seeing from your point of view? Well, I think for us in the public health, it's hugely uh, difficult not to be, you know, despairing really, and, uh, you know, bitter about what's happened, particularly in the last few weeks. Everything was so obvious <laughs> to, you know, to us. Um, I mean, I, I was just thinking that one day in school yesterday was probably the most unexplainable <laughs> action you know just explain uh, to people just explain to people listening what you mean by that who may not be in the uk and may not i'm <laughs> mad so, so, yeah, absolutely. mad so, so we had uh, school broke um for the christmas break um i think um, so we had the school christmas break and and that was you know, a natural time to instate a, a lockdown. And, and it was obvious that we needed one um, at the time and, and even, you know, much before that. But what happened is there was this um, bizarre, you know, plan of, uh, you know, primary schools can open. Well, wait a minute, not all of them. In some areas they may close and that changed uh, within a day or two. And then secondary schools had this complex scheme of, you know, some of them opening and not. And then the prime minister, I think it was Sunday morning, came on TV and said, uh, it's very safe to to send the children uh, to to school, and then yesterday, uh, 24 hours later, uh, it wasn't safe anymore. So they went to school. People went to school. Hundreds of thousands, you know, in primary school, people went for that day, uh, and then and then just came back from school. And the parents in the evening at 8 p.m. heard that. Uh, well, actually, uh, you know, what I meant is it, it was safe 
for the children, but actually it's not safe because of transmission <laughs> to uh, to other people. And that was so obvious. So it's all so it's very frustrating. And I think now I think in public health, we really need to focus on this is not a time to just, uh, you know, say, well, that's it. We locked down. No, this is a time to prepare. You know what? It's, it's very deja vu from March. You know, this is the time to prepare for coming out and making sure we never go into lockdown again. <laughs> so it's the and it's the usual. You know, the test and trace, and you know what are we going to do in schools and workplaces once the infection comes down? Great. I, I mean, yeah, the frustration has been amazing, hasn't it? Watching this sort of slow car crash, and and of course, with very serious people being ill and 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 some of dying. So it's it's. It's it's a you know one can almost laugh at it, but it's just tragic. Um, I, what I wonder then, let's just talk about the vaccine rollout, and then let's talk about what needs to happen to come out of lockdown. What should the government be doing, you know, to to make us able to come out safely from lockdown, which they you know rather failed to do last time. So the vaccine rollout. Um, ha, who's had their vaccine, Matt? You've had yours. Yeah, I had mine in that uh, first week, actually, that it was released. And locally, where I work, decided on different priority groups within the hospital, according to mainly risk of contact with COVID. They're also bringing in now risk assessment on an individual level, which uh, I think is, is great. And they've made a pledge to vaccinate all uh, frontline staff by the end of January, which is, you know, going to be a, a tough thing to do. They put in a lot of resource into it. I don't know whether they have the a right amount of vaccine to deliver on that pledge, but, uh, you know, I appreciate that, that sentiment uh, and that commitment uh, to do so. And perhaps with the change in uh, timescales, second dose that we'll talk about later, that that may make that possible, for example. So what proportion of your your colleagues uh, just in your trust do you think have been vaccinated so far or, or, or will be vaccinated in the next few days? I, I don't have data on that. And they have focused on frontline colleagues who are more likely to come into contact with COVID. And that's not just ICU. If anything, we have good PPE in ICU. And actually, it's the undifferentiated medical take, for example, where you don't quite know if somebody's uh, has COVID when they come into hospital, that's probably more at risk. And mm -hmm. so it's those areas, I think rightfully so in, in many ways that have been targeted. But, you know, I think it's got to go across those uh, acute services, really. Mm. Helen, have you had your vaccine? I have. In fact, bizarrely, I've had a single dose of the Oxford vaccine because I was in that trial and I've now unblinded myself because I had to find out. Um, and I've also had a first dose of the Pfizer. So I am a natural experimenter. The you are a natural, natural experiment. Absolutely. So we'll be watching you very closely in coming weeks, Helen, to see Indeed. if your behaviour changes or anything happens. And in fact, <laughs> but, uh, what, what happened yeah. for us was that when we had our first delivery of vaccine, we were told that there were five doses in a vial. And then the night before we were due to give it, we were told, no, actually, you can do six from a vial. So we then had extra doses and that meant we put a call out to all our local care homes and the community pharmacies and quite a lot of staff from the local hospital and the ambulance service to say come we we have these extra doses please come and, and and get protected so it was a nice feeling that we were able to offer the vaccine to healthcare staff um, around us 
And you've got enough vaccinators, have you? Because one of the issues has been retired doctors trying to volunteer and having this terrible business with NHS professionals where they've had to sign up for, you know, de-radicalisation training yeah, and a whole I, host I of really stuff. I really can't I mean, that, that... quite see why doing your prevent training isn't entirely necessary for um, being part of a vaccination campaign. But actually, at the moment, we we have plenty of people who are willing to do extra shifts and to do this because everyone wants to be involved and it seems like the most useful thing we can do with our skills at the moment. So um, we have volunteers who we haven't taken on yet, but we also have existing staff who are prepared to do it. Now, the, the limiting factor is supply of vaccine, not supply of vaccinators. And I think that's going to be the case for quite a while, actually, that actually just physically having the stuff to put in people's arms is the thing that's going to slow us down, or we hope won't slow us down, but we don't get much notice of when we're going to receive any where you know what the supply chain will be like is still and that makes it hard to book i guess that makes it hard to book people in if you just don't know when you're going to have the vaccine available oh the booking is really difficult so the with the first we've given one batch of the um pfizer vaccine which turned out to be um 1170 doses is a batch um and we had about four or five days to get those patients booked in. Um, and what we were faced with from middle of last week was the prospect of maybe cancelling all the people who also had appointments for their second dose and rebooking another set of the same number to come instead. Um, this was quite a controversial decision that we should um, change the interval between the, the, the first dose and the, and the second on the back of really no data at all because um, all, the, all the work done on the Pfizer vaccine, all the, all the subjects in the trial had a booster um, at three weeks. And I think there are good theoretical reasons to think that it may be absolutely fine to leave it longer. Um, but we don't have that data. Uh, and we also, one of the interesting things is that, that the, the data that we do have has, a, um, as far as I've seen, uh, an older age group, which is 55 to 85. And that's quite a big range. And, and we don't know what the immune response is in the very elderly or whether they may be more in need of boosting than, than younger subjects. There's so much we don't know. Fundamentally, there was an issue about consent and the fact that we had spoken to all our elderly patients and said come and have a vaccine and it's really really important that you come and have a second dose in three weeks time um, and yes this vaccine is safe it's had completely rigorous study we've got all the data and we can assure you that this is safe and it will work um, so I got into a little bit of um, trouble perhaps for suggesting that we should just keep our word to those patients and mm. um, do what we said we'd do, uh, which is actually what we're doing. We're going to go ahead and do our second doses this coming weekend. Um, You're going to go ahead with the ones you, you, where you've consented. That does seem to make sense. Well, Nizreen, tell us your, how you think this decision landed um, to, to ask that the second dose be delayed so that we could vaccinate more people with the first dose in this first wave of vaccination. How, how do you think that's gone down? I think it's been, been very interesting um, uh, reading um, 
and watching what the experts have to say about this um, and and people have um, had different opinions um, and it has it has controversial there are many experts who support this move uh, in order to vaccinate as many people uh, in a shorter time I, th I think the two main points for me really and and I'm not a, a, an expert in this in terms of you know immunology etc but I'm kind of trying to understand I mean the two main points that to consider I think um, is um, the, the distinction between um, the effect the effect of the vaccination in preventing severe disease and death, uh, which obviously what the trials showed, uh, and the effect of the vaccination on transmission, um, and which we don't we're not sure about yet. Um, you know whether, whether people who are vaccinated just don't become symptomatic or don't be, you know progress to severe disease, but they could still there might be a window of transmitting the the virus. I, I think the science is, is yet to to confirm things on that, and and I think but that's a crucial point because if it does prevent transmission, it would really make sense to me to vaccinate as many people in a shorter time frame because the, then you would be preventing And also I think as I understand um, it if it if does it prevent transmission that would change the prioritization because instead of wanting to uh, protect those who might get ill and go to hospital largely which is the elderly one would really want to get busy to vaccinating children and and um, you know those who are out and about uh, affected. And, and, and some um, countries, so Indonesia, apparently are, this is their plan to vaccinate a working age adults. Um, and I think, I do think it's a huge gamble because we don't know the effect on transmission, but it's a natural experiment as we've been seeing in this pandemic, that's what happens. People, countries respond differently. Uh, but I think the other thing is there, there have been a concern raised about if you, uh, with, the, with the first dose, there might be more chance of allowing mutations um, and then, you know, for, for the virus to become vaccine resistance and there have been some concerned uh, concerns raised about that as well i suppose uh so so i think it's um yeah i think from a public health point of view if we think it's prevent transmission to me it makes sense um as, as long as it's done efficiently to vaccinate as many people as, as possible there was this thing where you know there, there was a huge media you know kind of storm and, and i think many were quite concerned about the mix and match approach um, which, uh, which hopefully, as as far as I understand it now, is not is not recommended by uh, Public Health England. Uh, and you know, maybe Helen or, or Matt. As I understand it, um, the JCVI, the, the Committee yeah. for Journal for Vaccination Immunisation, mm. uh, didn't recommend it. But the Public Health England wanted some wiggle room just in case uh, there were some you know people who didn't know which vaccine they'd had or you know needed protecting, uh, and there was only the other vaccine available. So it was a kind of very much in parentheses in their guidance. Um, and they've, they've come back, as, as you say, saying, no, no, we do not recommend this, but just in very rare cases. So it's a kind of one of those other communication sort of hiccups, really, which, which, which could be quite damaging, I think. I mean, that's the risk with vaccines, is that, is that small kind of blips in people's confidence could have quite substantial effects. I do think the question of trust and confidence is really, really important. And actually, I'm fairly convinced by what I've heard that it may be better to spread the vaccine wide rather than deep. Um, and going forward, absolutely, we will explain to patients, you will have one dose, you will have your second dose in about three months time, as far as we understand, although we don't have the figures to back this up, this seems like a sensible strategy and we can vaccinate lots more people. 
I think that's absolutely fine going forward. I think there's a really interesting um, ethical issue about consent and shared decision-making with your patients about a course of treatment um, versus the wider public good. Um, uh, and actually the numbers of people who got their first dose of Pfizer and were already booked in to have their second were quite small in this whole scheme of things. We're talking hundreds of thousands, we're not talking millions at all. Um, and it, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference to the spread of the virus uh, nationally um, to revaccinate that particular very elderly people who are quite difficult to communicate with, by the way. You know, lots of the, they're not people you can just send a, an automated text to all your 80 pluses. You actually need to have a conversation with them. And that's a hard conversation. So for all those reasons, we didn't change, but we will change going forward. And I think that's fine. But in the process of doing this, I think we have confused people. We have made people less trustful of the science. We've made another a little gap for all those disinformation merchants that Matt was talking about earlier to get their foot in to say, look, these people don't know what they're doing. It's a mess. Don't trust them. Um, and and that's, that's a real shame that we have squandered the trust that was, was put in the vaccine programme by, by another mess. And it's a kind of, oh, no, they can't even do this bit right. Yeah, I think the approach Helen suggested about honouring that initial consent and then changing going forward is absolutely right. And, you know, I, I would be in one of those positions. And although I'd be absolutely happy for that alternative approach, I think for me, all care in medicine should either be evidence-based or evidence-generating. And this vaccine was evidence-based the way it was first delivered. And although there's biological reasons and other reasons to suggest that this alternative strategy is good, we need to collect that evidence for that change. And I think, so I'm very happy not to have my second dose, but I want my data to form the evidence going forward for that change. And so I think if that were in place, I, I could then see that justification for change in that initial consent, perhaps because of those reasons, because at least you're generating that data going forward. So I do think that that's a shame that at least that data isn't being generated for that change. And I, I wish it were. Nisreen, mm. can I ask you, um, have you had your vaccine and what's the view on the long COVID, um, people with long COVID and, and vaccination? So I haven't, I've not been offered the vaccine. I'm not frontline, um, so um, not in the categories. Um, Long COVID, yes, uh, I know of, uh, you know, her, her frontline um, doctors who've with long COVID who um, have had the vaccine. Uh, so far, I've not really, all very purely anecdotal, I've not heard any problems. But I do think it's really important for, you know, shout about long COVID again, because the, um, the vaccination strategy, the talk about, you know, uh, what happens in relation also to the lockdown is that once the, the vulnerable, you know, whatever that means, are vaccinated, then that's it, problem solved, we open up, nothing happens, but actually the morbidity story gets lost again. Um, we have statistics now from the from ONS, uh, the Office of National Statistics, that um, uh, one, in, uh, uh, one, um, one in 10 people, so 10% of uh, people get, who get infected actually um, not recover by 12 weeks 
um, so three so three months uh, or after, and um, 21 piece of people for one uh, one in five don't recover by five weeks uh, from you know all ages put together. I do look forward to their detailed analysis breaking down by characteristics and age and sex and ethnicity. Uh, but um, but a long COVID is a problem, and it's a problem to the economy um, uh, as well uh, because um, you know people um, a majority of long COVID patients can't go back you know, function fully in terms of work uh, and productivity, let alone other kind of caring activities. So, um, so if you open up, uh, you vaccinate the vulnerable, and then uh, hopefully that happens quickly, uh, then there will still be that concern, you know, if the you let the infection go through the community uncontrolled. And, and is it your sense that that isn't taken into account in the modelling sufficiently, that the morbidity side of things? I, I definitely think so. I think long COVID um, really be, gained a lot of attention, particularly, you know, and it's great that, you know, we have long COVID clinics now and there's, you know, funding for hopefully future research. But now at crisis time, like we're going to now, this gets lost. And I was just trying to think of all the government press briefings that we've had ever since the start, the actual press brief, briefings that we have. I don't think uh, morbidity or long COVID was mentioned in none of them. I do know uh, the health secretary did talk about it on you know different occasions, but actually on these press briefings where we where the where the the government trying to uh, to um, to justify the actions and the pandemic response, um, this makes a huge difference to communicate to people. You know, uh, in terms of you know you may not you know die or end up in intensive care, but you, you know your health might be affected for a significantly long time. You know, just quoting that, uh, you know, and statistics is very powerful, I think. Um, so I think we still need to, to say this, this is a problem. And, and really, we should be eventually, you know, the aim should be to vaccinate most of the population and get that herd immunity by vaccination. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but obviously it's really important to do it quickly because now we know about the mutation. We don't want to risk, you know, spreading the virus having, because if you, even if you vaccinate the vulnerable, the virus spreads amongst, uh, you know, you know, younger age groups, mutates again, becomes vaccine resistant. We're in the same cycle. We just need to do it all, you know, do it all quickly for most of the population. Yeah. Um, we're going to be, we're sending out some tweets the last few days to ask, um, listeners and readers to send us their experiences of vaccination program you know have they as healthcare professionals had their vaccination how was it for them because we've we gather it's been pretty patchy um you know some some areas working very well other areas it's staff have been emailed across the whole trust and desk-based staff have come in and had their vaccinations and uh, and then there have been none left for the anaesthetists and the, the frontline staff so i mean you know that we, re we we're hearing anecdotally quite a lot of um problems which you might expect with 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 such a system but it would have been good one might imagine well i mean one could imagine this could have been planned we knew the vaccine was coming it could have been planned and, and it's it's sad to see in some places it not working smoothly um it sounds like a kind of mantra for the whole pandemic doesn't it oh we could have foreseen this we really could have planned we could have planned wouldn't it be better if we'd planned for this uh and it's we really do begin to sound like a stuck record and rather it does it does feel exactly like that so let's talk about you know rather like a fantasy football team um conversation what what would we like the government to do in a perfect world the government's got let's say two months probably of of national lockdown in the uk um 
what 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 do we what do we want them to do? Let let let's give them a a, a plan. Nizreen, what do we want them to do? I mean, uh, obviously the vaccination, uh, as as many people as possible, uh, get this right, get the communication right. Uh, but also, uh, it's not just vaccination because lockdown can't last until most of the population is vaccinated realistically. Um, so it's, a, it's the same old, you know, test and trace, get it working, uh, you know, get the contact tracing working once we come out, you know, once the infection levels are down. But also, I think in settings, um, um, you know, when schools go back, uh, workplaces go back, you know, we know, you know, it, you know, you need more measures. Um, it's, you know, what we had was not good enough, you know, proper ventilation, um, you know, in schools, masks, in classes, lots of countries have implemented that, um, no major problem report, reported. Um, um, and, you know, so, so it's these simple measures, uh, we've seen that, you know, they work in, in, in other countries. And I think we need to um, to do that rather than just um, go back to, not, not as normal, but even go back to where we were, you know, in December, you know, more is needed to control the infection. Thanks, Nizreen. Matt, what's your hopes for government action? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I agree with all those things. I'm, I'll agree with what Helen says, I'm sure. So I'm gonna say three, perhaps slightly different things. Number one, I think it's probably time to change that message about protect the NHS and change it into protect your family, your friends, your colleagues and others, because that's ultimately what we are trying to do. It's not the structures of the NHS or, or staff or other things, it's, it's people. So I think it's probably time to change that message and maybe that will help with things like vaccine take up, uh, for example. Secondly, I think SAGE should probably be expanded into some other speciality groups such as human behavior, because the challenge now is not only what to do, it's how to tell or ask people and encourage people to do it. So I'd quite like a broader SAGE recommendation. And finally, in terms of planning for what's next, it seems far in the future, but we've got a plan for what happens when COVID has reduced and what will be left in hospitals and in primary care. And the tragedy would be if health boards and institutions just went back to work in the way they did before with austerity. You know, that would be an absolute disaster. So we need to plan now for how the health service is going to be different uh, when this settles down, and whether that's digital transformation, which has been a disaster so far, whether it's really valuing staff, and whether it's not allowing space in the system to be seen as inefficiency. Space in the system is safety, not inefficiency. So uh, th those three things would be my wish list. Thanks a lot, Matt. Helen? What's your wish list? So on a personal level, I would like a very regular supply of vaccine so that I know that I can, that we can vaccinate as many people as we can physically get in our doors, which will be quite a lot. So give us a supply and we will get it out to people. I think it's also, and that's going to be much easier once we've got the Oxford vaccine, by the way, because that there are lots of issues about having to use the Pfizer vaccine within um, three days, of it, three and a half days of it arriving, um, actually with the Oxford vaccine, which is so much more stable and we can take it out to people who are housebound. There's all sorts of things we can do, which we can't do at the moment, which is gonna be great, but we just need to know when it's coming, how much, as much as possible, we'll use it. I think the second thing 
which sort of relates to that is doing it local. Okay, if you hand something over to a bunch of um, GPs and practice managers in primary care, they get the job done and they've done amazing things in delivering the vaccine that's been given so far. So just let us get on with it. That's fine. Give us the stuff. Let us get on with it. And I think the same applies to the test and trace system. Actually, where it's been done locally with local authorities, that's been done really well. What we've seen really again and again is that these um, centralised, outsourced systems haven't really delivered. And although it's very late in the day, we still should be changing that so that we can embed a proper service that is serving the public um, in our local structures, which where we can join up local government and health things together at a local base. And, and, and I think that will work because we really have to make that test and trace. Once the infection levels have gone down and there, there's fewer people out there, we need to find who those people are. We need to support them not to spread that virus any further um, if we want to aim to get to zero COVID. And that really has to be where we're aiming for. So should we be, I mean, the government, I, people say, and I think it's a good idea, should requisition hotels and just um, give people, uh, you know, tell people to go and spend two weeks in a hotel. And, you know, I gathered in New York, they're even paying for your pet to be looked after in your absence. And, you know, the sorts of things that prevent people from doing the necessary thing. I mean, I don't know what research has been done. I mean, you need to do proper qualitative research in did you isolate? Why didn't you isolate? What were the things that stopped you? And then start addressing those, because I don't know whether we know that. And the other interesting thing, there's been data that very few people actually isolate as, as they're meant to. But what I don't know is, is it that they did everything else, but they did go for a walk in the dark by themselves, you know, because they couldn't see why they shouldn't. And maybe that's not too bad. Or did they not isolate? They actually went to work and mixed with loads of colleagues. And I, mm. I don't know what the scale of that non-compliance or just didn't is. have the physical ability to do so living in a you know high density well, housing absolutely or... what were the what were the limiting factors on that mm. and I, I i don't know whether that research has been done but I, I haven't seen the results of it it seems like really really important to know why when why we're not succeeding so it's, it's going to be mm. difficult to recruit people into this research because you're not isolating you don't want to take part in research and say i'm not isolating i think I think all sorts of the normal research uh, limitations, um, but but I do think there are educated guesses about you know um, you know a lot of the limitations are maybe you know so like you say crowded houses, but also socioeconomic people have having to do things you know having to go out rather than doing it for fun uh, you know because uh, they can't afford to not to you know to, to, they can't afford to isolate. Um, but if we've got data that says only 11% or whatever it was, people isolate as they're meant to, that must come from somewhere. So there must be some way of gathering that data to say, OK, on these t 10 days when you're meant to be isolating, what did you do? What did you what did you not do? How did you change your behaviour? What would have made you change it differently? Um, I'm sure it must be possible to collect some of that. And that would be such interesting and useful data to think about how we support people. And absolutely, a lot of it may purely be about resources. Um, if you have to look after somebody, how do you isolate? If you have to earn some money and you're not going to get any money unless you go and do the work, how do you isolate? 
Nizreen, uh, the public health system has been, um, you know, the subject of a lot of discussion over the past nine months. Uh, what, what had happened to it in the previous decades? What should have happened? Give us your sense about what should happen now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about how the public health system has been underfunded and the public health grant has been cut gradually over the years. Um, that absolutely needs to change. But I think, and also the striking thing for me is when the pandemic came to the UK, uh, we didn't really have an independent uh, public health body, you know, informing the actions, you know, Public Health England is not independent. Uh, and then you have the public health workforce in the council. And what, what there was a um, there was a, a gap there of independent public health expertise actually saying this is what we think from a public health point of view, because SAGE is great, uh, but actually it's the minor, minority, um, you know, people, you know, within SAGE are, you know, public health experts. They've got, you know, there are a lot of modelers, modelers and other experts, but I think we we trained for a long time in public health. Um, there are certain skills and expertise to have as public health um, expertise. Um, and, um, and, um, and I think, you know, we needed that independent public health opinion. There was a gap there. Um, so re if there is would be restructuring, which uh, there will be, I'm sure, because there's always been restructuring of public health uh, on a regular basis, it, this needs to be considered. I mean, I guess from the government point of view, the last thing you want is lots of people having independent views and stating them very publicly. Um, but the, the era when we had um, very senior, very experienced regional directors of public health, uh, many of whom retired when things got, you know, they retired early or, or, or have, you know, haven't been replaced. Um, it looks like a rather golden age for public health. Uh, do, do, could we imagine any government voting for that to come back? They'd much rather everyone was sort of supine and, and uh, you know, um, conceding. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, but we now know, and, uh, you know, lots of people know the importance of public health, you know, you know, the pandemic has made this so clear before people, most people didn't know what we do, really. Uh, and I think there needs to be some, you know, uh, public push to have, you know, proper public health uh, system, and that we need to have that independence in, in it, I, I, I think. I think it's really in interesting what you're saying about independence, and I've particularly been thinking about over the last few days the the balance between one's responsibility to give a consistent message to people and not undermine health messages that are out there and the need to say no it's wrong when you think it's wrong or or I mean in the case of the not giving the second doses to our very elderly patients. I thought that was wrong, but I, I did have to stop and think, is it right to say this, even though I disagree, because you in some way undermine a um, the trust that people have? I kind of concluded that they'd undermined it themselves and I wasn't doing any more damage than already been done. But I do think it's an interesting question about how much you have competing voices, which then publicly made people even more confused um, and how much it is one's duty to um, speak as one and, and, and sit on one's own disquiet. Uh, that's just a, a dilemma for me. Um, this was a, a big 
uh, thing, uh, really, um, a difference or, you know, in, in the early days of the pandemic within the public health community. Um, exactly what you're saying, Helen, that we shouldn't ha appear divided uh, and, you know, we should, you know, uh, all have this one message for um, the public so the public don't get confused. It's, it's very, it's a very difficult balance. I do still believe and I believe then um, and I still believe now that you, you need different voices. I think it's how you communicate things. You know, you could say, um, I don't agree with this because of this uh, and that. Uh, but I think it's very important and a lesson for us, certainly in public health. Um, and I've learned, you know, a lot over the past few months is the how to communicate. Uh, you know, uh, I think you can communicate difference, uh, but I think you, ha you have to do it um, in a certain balanced way um, and, uh, you know, rather than criticism for the sake of it. And we're all guilty of it sometimes because it's just such highly emotional, you know, <laughs> times um, and, and you despair a lot of the time. But I think that's um, that's important. And, and then looking forward, you know, looking forward rather than always looking back and saying, why didn't this happen? Well, now we're here. Let's this what needs to be happened, but actually having different voices about what needs to happen next is very is healthy, isn't it? You know, I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. I, I think as part of training and education as well, I think, for the next generation of leaders, consultants, uh, GPs, junior doctors, healthcare providers, we've had a revolution to some extent about human factors, learning how we interact as a team, borrowing from places like the aviation industry for crew resource management and others. And perhaps this next revolution now will be about this interface with the public, about human behavior, about how to disagree without arguing and about uncertainty, actually. And, you know, I, th I think back to medical school and the, the hours that I was taught things that may have formed the basis for stuff, but every day the problems I encounter are those of, of humanity, really, of disagreement, of uncertainty. And so for, for any educationalists uh, listening, perhaps that's a new revolution in undergraduate, postgraduate education, just like human factors have informed things uh, recently. Can I then take us on to this question about training? Because, um, you know, I'm hearing that it's quite tough at the moment. Surgical trainees, you know, where are they getting their experience? Um, a, a lot of the additional restrictions and, and, and safety measures mean that, that procedures have to be done by more senior people. Um, you know, it's COVID, COVID, COVID. What about everything else that people need to be exposed to, to, to train for the future? And also that sense of, um, you know, is healthcare for them when they're seeing such traumatic and, and traumatizing um, experiences going on around them? Maybe people might be reconsidering whether this is really the career for them. What, what would you say to them, Matt, how we can um, ensure, secure, protect and train the next generation of, of consultants and senior doctors and nurses? Well, well, it's certainly true that absolute numbers of procedures and so on for exposure have gone down, although we are still doing urgent cancer care, we are still doing uh, important cardiovascular disease and so on. Uh, but again, it's an opportunity, isn't it, to re-explore uh, that method of learning and that method of getting there and whether we need to invoke more simulation, more group learning, more uh, virtual reality and other adjuncts to the practicality. Not that that takes away the importance of the 
practicality at all because uh, it doesn't. Um, and I think in terms of people being fearsome about that, in many ways, you know, what this pandemic has shown, you know, I go to work, I, I, I'm a public servant, I get paid at, for going to work the same as I always have done. And I think for many, it's made them realise actually that protection in many ways uh, of, of public service. There's also a quote that says, the two most important days in your life, the day you're born and the day you realise why. And I think for many, yes, they may have had tough times, they may be, have cried, they may have had really tough days, but also they take away that sense of meaning and that sense of impact, I think, in many ways. So I think it will dichotomize. I'm sure what it will do is try to give people a perhaps more balanced portfolio. Uh, and I think that isn't particularly um, a, a bad thing, actually. So Nizreen, have you discovered why, why, why? Are you, obviously you were born. Have you discovered why? <laughs> Sorry, I really like that, Amat. Yeah, I was just wondering, has that second day happened for me yet? <laughs> well, I think we, we discover every day, isn't it? And, and I, th I think, um, I, as I said, I think oh, the amount of learning we, we learned in this pandemic I mean, I am in public health and it's our area, but I suspect many people and many other disciplines have the same. You know, you probably, you know, I feel like I've learned an equivalent of 10 years or more in the, you know, less than a year that we've had. But it has been very difficult for our students who are at the beginning of their clinical careers, who've not been able to examine mm. all the patients they would normally examine. Actually teaching anybody ENT or ophthalmology at the moment is really, really difficult because you have to be close to the patient and that's you know you don't have any extra people doing that that is absolutely necessary for the clinical procedure so it's been hard it's been really hard for them but on the flip side of that something that we learned in the first wave and I hope that we will rediscover again is something about what is actually important to do in life when you discover who's key and the people who are key are your teachers and your um, delivery workers and your supermarket workers and the people who look after children and your doctors and your nurses and the people who work in the hospital. And actually, the people running the hedge fund maybe aren't quite so key. And, um, you know, that, that chance for society as a whole to reframe who is valuable and who who I mean, not that we aren't all valuable, but, you know, who does society uh, need? Um, and I think that feeling of knowing that you have something important to offer um, has become even more obvious for um, young doctors, particularly when some of their contemporaries are not able to work and really don't quite see how they're contributing um, when so many things we, we, we just can't do. So this is a time for New Year's resolutions, and, and we have now the added uh, lockdown resolutions, people making plans for, for how they're going to personally get through lockdown, what they'd like to achieve in that time. Uh, let me ask you each before we end, what are your New Year's or lockdown resolutions? Nizreen? <laughs> uh, so yeah. is that the personal, personal resolutions? Well, I've got the classical lose weight. <laughs> 
that has to feature in there because um, yeah, we've not been very active. But I just like to say um, for those of you listening, um, Nedrine looks utterly svelte and not in need of losing weight. So that's clearly just <laughs> one of those habitual things one has to say. Yeah, I think I think um, for me, really. Um, Actually, my son asked me to do that on New Year's Eve because he was um, deciding about his New Year resolution. He, he's doing his A-levels now, so it's a pretty t- difficult time uh, for him. Um, and he, I don't do normally New Year resolutions, but he said, oh, you need to have some because I'm having some. Um, so I did the lose weight bit and then I struggled for the for, for other ones. But actually then it clicked that the day after is... Um, um, I, I think I've got a couple of more. I think it's doing more of things. I think I I would probably do more, and this might come as a surprise for somebody with who's an academic and scientist. But I would, uh, you know, go a bit more with my intuition about things uh, because I tend to really question that a lot, and uh, and I think it proved um, right on on on, on many occasions. Um, and I think I would. We would all. It's it's such a demanding and very busy time, uh, and I think what I would tell myself to do is uh, focus on the things that you know you do well and you know you are making a difference in. Uh, there's so many things that could be done, but I've, if I had a choice, uh, that would be a deciding factor for me. Fantastic. Helen? Well, in our family, we've got two particular phrases. Uh, one is um, furniture watching, and that means looking at the television. Uh, and the other is doom scrolling, which is basically Twitter. Uh, I don't have to do too much about my furniture watching because that's not something I do very much, but I do have to cut down on my doom scrolling. So that's that's my ambition. Good luck with that. Thanks, Helen. Matt? Uh, yeah, one practical thing and one slightly tongue-in-cheek, I guess. Uh, the practical thing, no phones in bedrooms. Uh, and so I've removed all chargers and plug sockets pretty much from all bedrooms. So I'm not tempted to plug my phone in uh, and have it in my bedroom. And I guess the slightly tongue in cheek thing would be to always buy travel insurance with pandemic cover, uh, as I've learned to my uh, distaste this year. <laughs> Very good. Well, look, thank you so much, all of you. Uh, thanks to Nidri Nalwan, Matt Morgan and Helen Salisbury. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to you, our listeners. So do let us know via social media or send your ideas to newsdesk at bmj.com, especially about your experiences of the vaccination programme. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. And do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Fee Godley. Goodbye and thanks for listening.